in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my prismatic co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing freaking awesome, Patrick. It's the end of the year. It's getting close to Christmas time. It's actually kind of Christmassy weather here in Houston. It's below 95. So <laughs> yeah, we were still t-shirts. <laughs> and and Patrick, we have a guest on today, don't we? We do have a guest on today. We've got Jake. And Jake, I'm gonna let you pronounce your last name just so I don't butcher it. You know, and I try not to pronounce it, but it's Mazalevich <laughs> if you really need to, but it just makes me very informal. I usually go by Jake. You want to be really formal, it's Dr. Jake, but yeah, that's it. So do you have Jake com? Like, is that anything? That one would have been very easy to find, but no, I actually went with a reliable org.com for the, for the human error stuff. And actually, I also teach technical trainers. So that's JMA, like Jake Mazalevich and Associates, jmamethod.com. That's what I got. Yeah, Jake, so you kind of already started down the road where I was going to take you in the fact that there is a PhD after your last name. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. I would say that I learned, so it's a PhD, it's in education, which when I I, I got into it because I was, truthfully, I was an EMT, emergency medical technician, and taking uh, satellite classes at the satellite location at University of Virginia going, I just got into it for some something interesting. And I was trying to decide, okay, my company was paying for some classes, so I'm deciding, do I either want to go to paramedic school? And I was seriously thinking about that, but I took some classes in uh, adult education, things like that. Really liked some of the theory of communication, decision-making, how people learn, kind of the applied psychology. And I wound up not going to paramedic school, obviously, and going for that, wound up getting a PhD in that. Decided not to go for the academic route, just could not bring myself to publish papers written in the language that just nobody else reads. I wanted to write for men and women of action as opposed to academics. And so I didn't even put it on my, uh, for the, for the main company that I work for the fortune 500 utility, I worked for, for a decade. I didn't even put PhD on my business cards because it tended to end all the wrong conversations. But then when I got into human performance, I went, wow, what is this human performance stuff? What I found out was it's mostly about communication, decision-making and helping people learn from their mistakes. And I went, I know a lot of the research on this. I just came at it from a really, really different point of view than most people do. Yeah, it's really cool. You came came from an EMT background. You also did a stint in the Army National Guard. I see. Uh-huh. So, so that's all rubber hit the road, actionable stuff. So, yeah. so you served your time in the trenches, and now we kind of fast forward now, and you're doing the whole JMA training method. Which, by the way, you sent me a handbook, HPI handbook, which is just it's short, sweet, to the point, super valuable. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. How did you go from there to where you are now? So. When I got into kind of working for the Fortune 500, I was, I got in for, I I basically, I do two things. I, I do human performance, which is basically helping people reduce, mitigate, and learn from human errors. 
right? That's the main thing. But I've also been doing for a long, long time, interactive teaching and training. And that's for, you know, a lot of that is for the medical industry, but I use that everywhere. Everybody from nuclear, I've taught it to electric utility uh, switch operators who have loved it. So I got into learning about education. And the first job that I got in in the big de, uh, utility was doing technical training. It was instructional designer. My job was to help out the technical experts translate what they knew into some kind of teachable form, which was harder than you think. And so I got to work with them for a couple of years doing that and then wound up from there kind of going, well, this is, it's interesting, but I don't want to know if I want to do this for 20 years. And then I found out about this human performance stuff. A really good friend of mine named Hilton kind of clued me in and he said, hey, Jake, you know, the guy who's doing human performance is retiring. You ought to apply for that job. And I have to thank him every time I see him because I went, what, what is this human performance? And he said, well, I can't really describe it, but it's some of the weird stuff that you and I talk about and you think about all the time. And, and I got into it. And the more I went into it, I went, I, I know this stuff. So that's, that's how I got into it. Yeah, and so when you say human performance, what does that mean to you? So if you go, yeah, it's not the name that I would have picked. If you go Google human performance, you're going to get all kinds of things from weightlifting and muscle milk to Tony Robbins to everything else. But what I have learned, the key word that I'd heard is human performance, or the better way to put it is human performance improvement, HPI. That's the way the Department of Energy puts it. And I kind of like that. What that means is basically strategies and principles to help prevent mitigate and learn from human error. The, the problem is every industry, including oil and gas, including electric utilities, medical aviation, military, uh, a, uh, aeronautics, almost any industry that you can name has some kind of problem with people making mistakes at, at some level. And some industries have woken up to that and said, we need to tackle this head on. And other industries just kind of prefer to sweep it under the rug and say, no harm, no foul, that's it. Some organizations learn from their mistakes, actively put effort, time, resources towards learning from their mistakes, and others don't. And we could generally, the, the, the tag word that I had heard for many years that, that collectively describes those programs to reduce, mitigate, and learn from, from human errors is human performance improvement. Even though you're right, human performance improvement could relate to a whole lot more things than just reducing errors. Yeah, Jake. So I think uh, maybe to expand on that, because I, I, I agree with you, when you're trying to find information on human performance, it, yeah. it does tend to go to health performance. But right. can you, so you, you talked about the you know, managing errors, managing human error. Yeah. Can you give a little insight into what you consider human errors? Because in my experience, a lot of companies will do a root cause analysis and get to human error, and that's where they yeah. stop. They yeah. don't get to the subtleties of what those human errors actually are. So you can give us a little insight into that. So uh, the, one of the big statistics I use that's a real eye-opener actually comes from a different industry. When I, when I teach my workshops, I do about 50% of my examples from the industry that I'm working with. Now, a lot of that's electric utility, but I also do a lot of government research labs, things like that. And about 50% of my examples from outside, just to let people know I'm not picking on them and everybody has kind of a, the same problem. The example that comes to mind is from uh, medicine, from healthcare a report came out called To Air as Human. And this was several years ago. This came out, I believe in 1999. So it's a while ago, but it said that about 44,000 to 98,000 people die every year 
every year because of preventable medical errors. I mean, that's 50,000 people to 100,000 people dying in the hospitals. These are the places we go to feel safe. And most people have no idea about that. And I say, okay, these are, there's no lack of education, of training, of resources, of money, of technology, of support in hospitals. And yet we have that many people dying there. What does that mean for kind of normal beer drinking people like us who are not surrounded by all of that stuff, usually all that education? And most people wind up saying, yeah, we are awash in human errors. We just kind of think of it as the cost of doing business. It can be anything in practical examples. It can be anything from throwing the wrong switch in a substation, setting up a a substation relay with the wrong parameters, the wrong criteria. It can be opening or closing uh, the, the wrong device. It can be not just field skills, but desk workers make some huge errors as well. You, If you write the wrong, I talked to a woman in HR, one of my recent classes, and she said they came within one or two mouse clicks of sending out an employment offer, a letter to somebody, which had the wrong salary in it. And that would have been out there in writing. They would have had to honor that because they put it in writing. Electricians write the wrong specs on a one-line drawing, things like that. So there's errors all over the place, whether you're a desk worker or a field worker. And so, Jake, when when you're so, I, I get the whole that is kind of scary. The statistics on the medical stuff, yeah, especially here in the U.S., where you consider, you know, you hope that we're kind of leading the the medical charge. But yeah, when you when you look at humans making mistakes and, and you see it across different industry verticals, is there something they all have in common? The the, the reasons? So yeah, so the more when I first started diving into human errors. We took a lot of our cues from the uh, nuclear industry. Now, they had had, obviously, pretty good safety records since uh, Three Mile Island because that was kind of their wake-up call. This is It's kind of interesting on the history. Almost every industry that takes human error seriously has had a very painful, traumatic wake-up call. The commercial nuclear industry had Three Mile Island in 1979. The chemical industry had Bhopal, is a, a small town in India, a release of methyl isocyanate in 1984, I believe, and that killed and sickened many, many, many people. The commercial air aviation industry had an event called Tenerife off a small island off the coast of Africa. Everybody kind of took, everybody who takes a human error seriously kind of had their wake up call. And when you first look at errors, you might fall into the very common trap of saying, well, we want to get errors down to zero and we'll just apply some defenses to minimize those errors. And you'll you'll come up with things like uh, peer check, checklist, three-way communication, self-check, touch your point. These are some classic, what I call classic individual and team defenses. And a lot of people will say, well, if we can just prevent errors from with those defenses, that's all we need. But you ask the question, what do errors have in common? The biggest thing I would say is most errors worth talking about are not caused by one person making one mistake. In fact, the whole term human error, while it conjures up images that are very visuals, even visceral, it's a it's a misnomer. A really a better way to put it is almost any incident worth talking about is not caused by human error, but they're triggered by human error and caused by a lot of organizational weaknesses. In in a lot of ways, organizational weaknesses set people up to make certain errors over and over. That's what that's the big commonality. And some some companies look deeper to those organizational errors, others don't. 
And so if you could give like a quick example of what that might look like, what would that be? Here's a classic example. I, I teach this in my workshops, again, because it's an, it's an older, but it's a classic example. It's from aviation. So short version is this. Back in the middle of World War II, we had B-17s and two other kinds of planes, B-29s, P-51 Mustangs, that were crashing, but they were all crashing in the same way. They would all line up for the, the landing, touch down, but as soon as their wheels touched the ground, right, the landing gear would crumple underneath them and they'd usually belly out, spark a fire and catch onto a fireball, kill everybody inside. We were basically killing more people in training than we were losing them in combat. It was that bad. Wow. And no, nobody could figure out why these crashes were happening. But they said, basically, it's either a mechanical flaw or it's human error. And if it's a mechanical flaw, we'll find it, we'll fix it. But if it's human error, man, those pilots just got to, you know, straighten up and fly right. They just got to pay more attention. Well, you can't get people to pay more attention than pilots in World War II who think, if I do this wrong, I might die. It, you just right. can't motivate right. people any more than that. So they were looking for mechanical flaws. Guess what they found? No human mechanical flaws. There was nothing. These planes that were crashing, there was nothing mechanically wrong with them. It was stymieing the best minds. I mean, think of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, the smartest, most dedicated folks in the veterans generation, they couldn't figure it out. So one guy was a psychologist, buckled into the jump seat, and he started watching these pilots landing, knowing that he could die on any of these, any of these flights. And one time, he saw one pilot do something, and in an instant, he knew why these crashes were happening. What he saw was a pilot reaching for the wrong lever. He saw a pilot reaching for one lever and then coming back, almost like an electric shock, reaching for the lever right next to it. What do you think he was doing? That pilot and all the other pilots who were crashing were mistakenly going for the wrong lever. And the psychologist talked to the pilot afterwards and said, hey, that, that error that you almost made, right? That, talking, uh, moving that different lever. What was that lever that you almost touched but didn't? Pilot said, wow, man, you don't want to do that. That lever pulls up the landing gear. Oh, wow. So they had two levers right next to each other. One pulled up the landing gear and the other one dropped the flaps, which is what the pilots were trying to do. And so the psychologist saw what they were doing, made the mis you know, say, seeing them make the mistake or almost made the mistake and went, I know what to do. What he wound up doing, clever fix, he took both of those knobs, both those handles had little black balls on top of it. He took those off and on one of the handles, he put a round, squishy, like a rubber tire thing. That was the landing gear handle. And the other one, he put a sharp angled piece of plastic, like a flap. Nobody ever made that mistake again. Not basically, not, not nobody ever, but basically errors dropped instantly, dramatically, and permanently. But the bigger question was, you know, was this a human error? Technically it was a human error, but we were setting people up by putting those handles so close to each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, that, that's such a perfect example because it's such a small, insignificant thing yeah. when you're thinking about designing something like the cockpit of an airplane. Yeah. But well, it's such it's, a major thing when you're talking about people and being involved. And it's yeah. easy enough to internalize it that if you, you made the mistakes like, oh, I shouldn't have grabbed that lever. Yeah. But yeah, you shouldn't have grabbed that lever, but we did set you up to make that mistake because now everybody's making it. It's also not something you talk about. It's like, hey, guys, I just made a mistake and almost killed myself. Did you do the same thing last right. night? And back then, the culture of aviation, saving Private Ryan, you know, culture was sort of like, exactly, you don't talk about stuff like that. 
one of the reasons why aviation is kind of the gold standard. They have their human performance work and culture is probably the the best in the world. And so we learn, I take a lot of lessons from aviation. They're not perfect, especially like ground crew, ground handling crew, stuff like that. They, they have their more than their share of accidents, but for passenger safety, they are as good as you can get. But their culture now is very much one of sharing. It's Remember I mentioned before, no harm, no foul. That is not the way aviation or any other high reliability team works. The high reliability teams basically go, there's a certain way things should get done. And if something surprised you, we talk about it and we share it. Because if you made that mistake, somebody else is going to make that mistake too. But you got it. That's a lot of ego to get over. And it took pilots to do it. And medicine is starting to do it, but they, they got a lot of ego to get over. And, uh, you know, utilities and uh, oil and gas, probably somewhere in between. Well, I like that you brought up ego because it's not just ego at the individual level recognizing these things. But I've been on investigations where you have to get impro- approval from a supervisor of that operation. And yeah. I've long thought that whether you're in-house or a third-party contractor doing these investigations to then say that, well, the mistake was made and it was human error, but it was actually a cultural issue. It was cultural cultural issue right. at the facility, cultural issue on the region, and ultimately a cultural issue for your company. So you're passing blame all the way up the chain, right up to the CEO if you get that far. Right. And as an internal employee, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. And as a third-party contractor, thinking about not getting the work next time has got to be hard. So like, how do you get over that ego and not just yours, but how do you get over your bosses and your boss's boss's ego? Yeah, those are those are some pretty serious cognitive biases that, that all of us have baked into us. I mean, we we all kind of we want to take responsibility and we want to give responsibility. If if something went wrong, we want to go kind of in our in our Western culture we basically have a kind of an atomistic or mechanistic view of things. In other words, we treat, you know, social systems, teams kind of like machines. And if something goes wrong, unexpected, we tend to go, hmm, well, let's find the part that's broken or the bad apple and get rid of it and put in a working piece, like a work, you know, fire somebody who was the bad apple and put in somebody who is going to be better and that'll fix things. Trouble is machines work that way. Technical systems work that way, but social systems, people-based systems don't work that way. People-based systems adapt, improvise, overcome, uh, do a lot of other things that don't just follow procedure. So it's a lot harder to nail down what is an error and what isn't unless something blows up. Well, and, and just running somebody off that's made that error that you want to correct that person will not only never make that mistake again, but they will also share their learnings. And like you said, just to just to remove that that cog, which in this case is a person, you've right. lost all that learning. You've lost all that experience. You've lost that firsthand. He's going to tell his buddy not to make that, that mistake. Right. He's if you there's an old story and I, 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 I don't know how apocryphal it is. I'll, I'll kind of apply the old what the old Marine told me about storytelling, which is start with the truth, but don't let it limit you. Word of von Braun back in the 1950s, after he'd come over from Germany, is working on our rocket systems and developing all of the precursors for, for both the military rockets and the space program, too. And he's working on a, uh, an early rocket called Redstone, right? This is the 1950s, maybe 60s, something like that. So they got a Redstone rocket on the pad. They count down three, two, one, ignition, boom, blast off. The thing takes off. And 
then within a few meters, it starts spinning and burning out and goes and crashes. And everybody who's watching it just is crestfallen and goes, oh man, I mean, that's all, that's six months worth of work in a smoldering, uh, you know, heap on the side. And that's it. Well, a young mathematician knocks on the door of Werner von Braun and his friends are all behind him saying, go and tell him, tell him. And so the young mathematician walks in, you know, and it's like hat in his hand. And he said, sir, I, uh, I think I know why that thing crashed. And von Braun says, well, why? What do you, what do you think? And the young mathematician said, based on how it spun out of control, it looked like it had something to do with the angular, whatever jargon it was. He said, that's something that I did calculations on a few weeks ago. So I went back after the crash and I looked at my calculations and I sure as heck realized, yep, I made an error. And I'm pretty sure that's that's what caused the thing to uh, to blow up. And I know it. I just cost us six months of work. And I know you're going to fire me, but I just I just wanted to let you know that maybe it'll be helpful. And von Braun reportedly said, "Wait right here." And he went back into a back room, and the other guy went, "I don't. Was well, he going to go get a gun? I don't know." <laughs> so he came back with a bottle of scotch, and he said, "Here, this is for you." I mean, to which I mean, what do you say when Werner von Braun gives you a bottle of scotch? I mean, cheers, you know. But he said. You Duncan? just saved us. Danke, right. Prost, right. He said, you just saved us a couple of weeks or months of painstaking root cause analysis to figure out what went wrong. We start building the new version of the rocket tomorrow, and I want you to be the lead of the mathematics team. Now, what do you think happened to that young mathematician's discretionary effort? He dialed it up to about, on a scale of one to 10, he probably dialed it up to about a 15 and left it there for the next 20 years. Well, what a powerful story. Yeah. I mean, that it just, I mean, it tells, uh, that is so cool. Yeah. This is a perfect spot to stop. It's time for the okay. Red Wing safety tip of the week. Yeah. Jake, do you have a safety tip for our audience? A safety tip for the audience. Wow. Something quick, something short. Everybody has a gut hunch. Almost, almost everybody has a gut hunch, but you, get, you can get into problems listening to it or not. So here's one of the best things I've ever heard. When your gut hunch tells you to do something, that's not always the good idea. Uh, think of that date that you had in high school, right? But when your gut hunch tells you to not do something, it is, in my experience, almost always the right thing to do. So listen to your gut hunch. If it tells you to do something, double check it. But if your gut hunch tells you to not do something, that's almost always the best thing to do. Yeah, that's actually a really good safety tip. I unfortunately tend to do the opposite. I can tell you, I can tell you from experience, you're, you're pretty right. Yeah, high degree of, of being correct on that. The, the well, scientists say we have, go ahead. I've said on this this podcast, it was probably a year ago that I said that you know it, it's you know, equate it to carrying you know three glasses of milk or water through the through your house. Like I should make two trips. Your gut's telling you you're going to drop one of these, and you know you end up you know dropping something in the living room on the carpet. You know it's it's a simple example of that that gut feeling that you know if you're dealing with high pressures or other other industrial equipment, yeah, yeah. definitely listen to that gut feeling. Yeah. What does the old bumper sticker say? Something like "Good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment." <laughs> <laughs> so Jake, I want to circle this back around sure. because this has been this has been really awesome stuff. But when you're looking at corporations and you're looking at companies and people, yeah. the leaders are the ones that really have to understand yeah. this because they're the ones that make the decisions where they can help their teams and their people and their company yeah. or they don't, right? Yeah. So so this is a real important thing for everybody, but especially leaders in in the in the, in the corporate world. Yeah. So that's true that's true. 
I'm not sure what the question is you're asking on that. I agree <laughs> with everything you've said so far. Let me take a mark because I'm actually take I'm, I'm I'm on the website and you've got one of your one of your training. You've got a nice little uh, question in here. Is what are the three types of errors that can help leaders clearly understand most incidents? So can you give us you know just a high level of what those three types of errors that leaders need to focus on? Okay, what three types of errors can help leaders clearly understand most incidents? One of the models. So there's a lot of different ways to chunk up errors. You can talk about errors of omission, errors of commission. This particular model was invented by a guy named Rasmussen a long time ago, but it's helpful to a lot of people. Rasmussen came up with terms that I don't really like. He called them knowledge-based, rule-based, and skill-based errors. Now, the model is really good, although as a good mentor of mine told me, you know, Jake, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. What I did in my little handbook was renamed it into these three categories of errors, which I think make make more sense. One is improv-based errors. That's basically when you don't have a procedure, you're not quite sure what you're doing, you're likely to make a lot of mistakes in that because you're improvising, right? That's an improv-based error. The second one is procedure-based error. You've got a procedure in front of you, like you're following a recipe, but you're not expert at it. You've only done it once or twice. Chances are you're going to make errors in that because of misinterpretation or assumptions, right? Oh, I assumed step two was part of step three, something like that. And yeah, the just third, give me a recipe and put me in the kitchen and then I'll, I'll show you an example. Exactly. Or it's, it's it's like my old grad school advisor. He said, yeah, we'll just take the, take the ham, put it in the oven. The guy called my advisor up after about an hour and said, hey, hell, the ham blew up. He went, what do you, what do you mean the ham blew up? You mean it burned? He said, no, I mean, it blew up. It was a canned ham. <laughs> Hal just assumed that the guy yeah. would obviously take the can, the ham, the ham out of the can, and that didn't work, and that was it. So you can't, you know, that's a, that was a procedure-based error. The third kind of error is a habit-based error, meaning you've done something so many times you don't even really follow the procedure anymore. The chances of you make an error are really small, but when you make an error, it's going to be because you tuned out because you have inattention. So those are the three kinds of errors that I think leaders, what I found is it's, that's one of several category systems for errors that give leaders kind of some buckets to put things into, make it easier to talk about and categorize. It's silence. <laughs> you have a follow-up question, Patrick? No, I was, I was, I was trying to you know, lead your, your question to give it a little more, a little more clarity so he could go into it. So, I, I mean, it's those things that leaders think is like, well, just do it right. And if you don't yeah. get down into, all right, well, are you setting them up for failure? Are you giving them all the information they need? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's everything you just said. It's all those intricacies of, I can give you instructions, but am I communicating that effectively? Yeah. I, or, I, know, what I, I know what I told them, but I don't know what they heard. Exactly. Or so, Jake, yeah. I got to ask you a question about this. So, you spend a lot of time training, you know, leaders and people all over the world, doing a lot of different stuff. You do keynotes. What is the challenge in today's always-on world? Is is getting people to stop and sit down and learn so they can make changes an easier or harder thing to do now that everybody's connected twenty four hours a day, seven days a week? What's that's a great question and. What I find the big challenge is, is in this, in this 24 seven connected world, everybody seems to want a technique or a skill or basically a, a quick fix. And there are some quick fixes out there. Band-Aids get short shrift. People say, oh, this is a Band-Aid solution. You know what? I got two kids, 12 years old and 10 years old. We use a lot of Band-Aids. They're good. Band-Aids are fine, but they don't substitute for an MRI. Right. And so right. the the best way I can tell, and I start off all of my workshops on this is I'm here to teach you two things. One is some practical 
field tested techniques, skills that practices that you can apply immediately, right? Three-way communication, uh, peer check, self-check, after action review, scan and focus to improve situational awareness. Those are all things you can do today, but that's not going to be enough. The other thing that I'm here to do is to help you change the way you think about errors, about decision-making, about communication. Because if you just retain your old mental model, the same one that you had in high school about what an error is, a few techniques are going to help a little bit, and then you're going to plateau out and never going to change. Big change comes from learn a few techniques, but then go through a big mind shift of realizing a different way to look at errors, a different way to look at discipline, a different way to look at accountability. Then a whole new world of techniques opens up and you got to alternate between learning practices and learning techniques. And in this modern world, I get a lot of people who say, we don't have time to change our way of thinking and we don't want to do that. Just give us a few quick fixes. That's the biggest challenge. And I was actually going to say, you know, what is that catalyst? Is it, you know, and I, I believe everybody should just stop and reassess how they're doing, but you know, is it a certain, you know, climate incident rates? Is it, you know, after you kill somebody, you have to start doing this, you know, when, when's a good time to actually stop your day to day to implement these types of changes? We kind of started off the podcast by telling a few stories. And I said something like every major industry that I can think of who takes human performance, human error seriously has had a wake up call, meaning they've had an incident that basically brought them to their knees and went, wow, we really lost it. Those kind of incidents make you are one of the few things that make executives and senior leaders look at each other and say, maybe we've been going thinking about this all wrong. And that's one of the few times when people are really open to saying, maybe we need a completely different way of thinking about this. That so I, I never recommend you know going through a trauma like that. The, the best other way to do it, if you're not going to go through a, a wake up call traumatic moment like a crucible, is read. Mark Twain said it best. He said, "People who don't read are in basically the same boat as people who can't read." So don't be that guy. There's so much out there that's good to read. I got a ton of good resources on my website on the resources page of my website. A great one to start with might be Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, S-Y-E-D. So lots of good introductions like that out there. Very readable, almost page turners like a Dan Brown novel or Michael Crichton, very readable, but still very evidence-based. And those are, those are really good ways to get started in changing your thinking. Yeah, this is a perfect time for me to stop everybody just for a second. If you want one of these Red Wing bags, these Red Wing offshore bags, and unfortunately, Jake, you're remote, so you can't see it because a lot of times Patrick and I actually point at it. And uh-huh. This is it. It's really simple. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We give away one lucky winner a week. Now, audience, listen to me. This ends today. This is the last bags that we're giving out. So if you want to win one, you better go enter and you better do it quickly because like I said, this is the last one. And also before we get back to you, Jake, Patrick and I just want to uh, wish our audience, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, have a great New Year's, be safe out there, people. But we're going to take a break with our families and we'll come back and and pick this back up in the new year. Yeah, we know a lot of people are out with their oil field families. So wherever you are, like Mark said, be safe, have a Merry Christmas and make sure that you go back to your family how you loved them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Jake, 
you do all kinds of stuff and you're actually a blast to have on the microphone. I have the show and a guest. We have to get you back on. <laughs> but if, but if people wanted to find out more about you and your business, where should they go? Yeah. So reliableorg.com, www.reliableorg, like reliableorganization.com. That's the website that's all about human error, error management, all that stuff. If you go to the resources page, there's a video, there's a couple of links, many links to books, articles. There's four or five different handouts from my presentations, even I think kind of an abbreviated slide deck. That's a great place to get started on that. I think actually just recently there's a video cast up on there as well. So there's there's some good information on that. If you're more into uh, the technical training, just learning how to teach and train better, the other site is www.jmamethod.com spelled out. That's www.j as in Juliet, M as in Mike, A as in Alpha, jmamethod.com. And that's the uh, interactive site for technical educators. Yeah. And I'm guessing if people want to find out more about you personally, LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn is a great, I'm on LinkedIn. I haven't published that much recently. I've got some good bios, even kind of a couple of bio videos on the JMA method site. And I've got a good bio page on the uh, human error site, but I've also, I'm also on LinkedIn too. Yep. It's about the only social media I do. Yeah. And so everybody will put links in the show notes. So whatever app you're listening to swipe up or left or right, and you can get to those and just, they're all clickable. And if you're out there and and this stuff that interests you, one of the things that I think that's really cool about what uh, Jake does, that's a little bit different than other people in his world is he actually does keynote presentations. So if you want him to come and talk to your organization in an entertaining, educational, valuable way, reach out to him along all the other stuff that he does. And if you like what we're doing, go uh, follow us on LinkedIn group. Oh, which by the way, we talked about this on Oil and Gas this week. We haven't talked about it here. We are looking for an OGGN, so Oil and Gas Global Network, who's the uh, parent of all the podcasts, including this one. We're looking for street team members. So if you want to volunteer about an hour a week and work with us, you get some really cool swag. You get uh, OGGN street team shirts. You get to be part of our press team. And, and we just need a little bit of volunteer help working our social media, including things like LinkedIn. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me. We're going to start putting that together and working with that street group street team in the new year. And if you go to the, the website, go ahead and give us your email address. I promise we will not spam you. We only use that to let you know, know about new stuff we're doing. Events on deck. We always have the happy hour here in Houston, which is expanding to other parts of the U.S., but it's always the last Tuesday of month uh, here at the Canon. There's a uh, links in the show notes for that. You can also go to the oilandgasglobalnetwork.com website, and there's an events page. You can see what's going on. And Patrick, you know, there's something I haven't told you yet because you and I have been so busy. We finally got the actual URL OGGN. Finally, it's so a long our, time. Long yeah, time coming. Our, our 17-inch long oil and gas global network yeah. doesn't fit on our business cards. It's getting ready to go away. <laughs> so we're getting that fixed. Jake, man, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on you the show. Bet. This was this was we got to get you back on this, and, and we got to see about getting you in person at one of our events. But just you know, big big thank you and, and happy you holidays bet. to uh, to you and yours. Thank you so much. This has been a great, but this has been a lot of fun. Safe travels, and yes, look forward to working with you again. Absolutely, Good deal. Jake. Thank you. You bet. You ready to get out here, Patrick? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. Houston, to London, to Dubai, and beyond.
All right, Jake, here's the part where we ask you, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen in the field? Oh, man. See, now, I don't know if I can tell you on a PG-rated podcast the craziest thing I've seen in the field, but I'll tell you something that threw me for a loop. So I, tr- I try to kind of maintain an even keel. It's part of kind of doing what I do. So I had a supervisor come up to me one time and say, Jake, I got this guy. And you're about to go on you know, and teach our group and everything. We have our pre-job briefings, right? Written pre-job briefings. And one of the boxes that they're supposed to check if it works is three-way communication. It's just a classic tool, right? I say something, you repeat it back to me, ask whether I got it. And I say, yes, three-way communication. He said, Jake, I got this guy who keeps marking out three and writing in two. <laughs> and I have no idea why he's doing it. Can you can you figure this out? And I went, sure, no problem. I'm just rolling with it. Like people ask me this every day. I'm going, what the? I, I, okay, fine. So I teach my class. I do my case study, whatever it is, interactive case study on a, a switching incident. They come back afterwards and I'm talking with this guy. And he said, you know, uh, I learned something today. And it's like, I've been to this place four or five times. I've taught, it's not the first time I taught. And I mentioned three-way communication. And he said, you know, I just work with me and one other guy. And so uh, we always thought, well, we're not doing three-way communication because we don't have three people. We just have two people. So I wanted to be accurate and crossed it out. And I went, well, thank you, sir, for being accurate. But now you, now you know the right way to do it. Didn't drop a hint. Didn't do anything. I'm like, walked away going, you can't just teach somebody one time. It just doesn't work. You got to, you got to get them a couple times. That's really funny. That was it. Yes. As a side note, Jake, I, I got off an investigation. One of our recommendations was to use, and we called it closed loop communication, same way as, same yeah. thing as three way. Yeah. And I just flat out got told that's not how we talk out here. And I said, <laughs> I, I know, I know I used to work offshore. I, I understand the, the, the way you do communicate. This is a recommendation to make sure this type of incident doesn't happen again. Yeah. It's not the way we talk out here. So, wow. All you can do is say, well, this is how the best people in the world talk. You you talk how you want to talk. Yeah. Special breed. You can't, you can't make this type of stuff up. No, no. I was shocked. I was shocked when I got that response. I, I really didn't know how to respond. To- <laughs> well, there's, there's All more right. good stuff to come and maybe we'll talk about it on another podcast. I think it'd be good. I think Perfect. having you back on would be excellent, Jake. Cool.